Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A judge orders the DOJ to respond to an issue related to the warrant officers used to raid former President Trump's home. And lawmakers also want answers. And an interview with author and award-winning investigative journalist Alex Newman. What he has to say about the raid and about the future of America. An Iranian agent is charged with plotting to assassinate a former Trump administration official. John Bolton's reaction. Inflation shows signs of cooling in the latest data from July. What factors lie behind the data and what the report says about the economy. Concerns raised over mail-order prescription drugs. A transgender activist posts about sending personal hormone drugs to people who want them. Is this legal? Baseball star Shohei Otani's latest achievement puts him in rare company with only the great Babe Ruth. He earned MVP honors last year and is accomplishing even more this season. The Justice Department today charged an Iranian agent in an assassination plot on U.S. soil. His target? Former Trump administration official John Bolton. In a news release on Wednesday, the Justice Department said they charged Sharam Porsafi, a member of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps based in Tehran, Iran. The Corps is designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. Court documents allege that beginning in October 2021, Porsafi attempted to hire people in the U.S. to murder Trump-era national security advisor John Bolton. This assassination plot was undertaken in apparent retaliation for the January 2020 killing of Qasem Soleimani. We face a rising threat from authoritarian regimes who seek to reach beyond their own borders to commit acts of repression, including inside the United States. Porsafi allegedly offered $300,000 for people to, quote, eliminate Bolton in Washington, D.C. or Maryland. Bolton was national security advisor from April 2018 to September 2019. He was one of the figures responsible for President Trump's tough stance on Iran. This was not an idle threat. And this is not the first time we have uncovered brazen acts by Iran to exact revenge against individuals on U.S. soil. We will work tirelessly to continue to expose and disrupt every one of these efforts. According to the Justice Department, Porsafi noted earlier this year that he was under pressure to complete the murder. He also expressed regret that the murder could not be carried out on time. If convicted, Porsafi faces up to 25 years in prison and a fine of up to $500,000 for two separate charges. The Iranian agent remains at large abroad and wanted by the FBI. Bolton reacted to the plot on Twitter, saying in part, I wish to thank the Justice Department for initiating the criminal proceeding unsealed today. Iran's rulers are liars, terrorists, and enemies of the United States. Last month, police arrested a man with a loaded rifle near the home of Iranian journalist and activist Masi Alinejad in Brooklyn. The journalist has spoken out against the Iranian regime and was targeted in an alleged kidnapping plot. Alinejad reacted to the murder plot against Bolton, saying kidnapping, assassination, and taking hostage is in the DNA of the Islamic Republic. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The latest updates on the FBI's raid of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. The judge who approved the search is giving the Justice Department until August 15th to respond to motions to unseal the warrant. The Trump team has obtained a copy of the search warrant and reportedly has no plans to release it. And with no word from the FBI or the DOJ, Republican lawmakers are calling for answers. And TD's Jason Perry has more for us from Palm Beach, Florida. I'm here right outside of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. And on the other side of me, there's a filled up parking lot with about 20 cars who have all come and shown their support for the former president. Some of them have Trump 2024 flags, American flags, have cars have driven by, they've honked their horns in what looks like a show of support for the former president. On Monday night, FBI agents executed a search warrant on Trump's Florida resort. They were looking for presidential records and anything that could potentially be classified. That's according to Trump's lawyer who was on the scene during the raid. The agents left with boxes of documents. 
The former president previously agreed to return certain records to the National Archives, calling it an ordinary and routine process. Trump wrote on Truth Social today, in early June, the DOJ and FBI asked my legal representatives to put an extra lock on the door leading to the place where boxes were stored in Mar-a-Lago. We agreed. They were shown the secured area and the boxes themselves. Then on Monday, without notification or warning, an army of agents broke into Mar-a-Lago, went to the same storage area, and ripped open the lock that they had asked to be installed. Trump's son, Eric, told the Daily Mail that FBI agents would not hand over the search warrant during their raid and also removed an attorney from the property. So far, both the FBI and the Department of Justice have remained silent on the matter. And the White House refused to comment on the matter when pressed by reporters yesterday. Republican lawmakers are calling on the Biden administration to give an answer. Congressman Michael Turner urged FBI Director Christopher Wray to hand over materials showing an evidentiary basis for the raid. And Senator Rand Paul told Fox News that he wouldn't be surprised if an investigation led to the impeachment of the attorney general. And then if it warrants it, there's going to have to be a look at whether or not the attorney general has misused his office for political purposes. Have they gone after a political opponent? Meanwhile, the former president was in New York earlier today, where the state's attorney general's office questioned him under oath in another case unrelated to the raid. The attorney general's civil investigation is into Trump's family businesses. Trump said in a statement, I decline to answer the questions under the rights and privileges afforded to every citizen under the United States Constitution. The Constitution's Fifth Amendment offers protection against self-incrimination. Jason Perry, NCD News, Florida. And earlier today, I spoke with Alex Newman, a journalist and author who works with outlets such as The New American and our sister media company, The Epic Times. He's also the CEO of Liberty Sentinel Media. And he says the FBI's raid on Trump's Florida home marks a new concerning era. Alex Newman, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago, some say it's justified, others are outraged. What's your take on it? Well, it's unprecedented. And uh, I, I mean, unless they have evidence that there are dead bodies buried at the property, I, I think it's going to be very, very hard to justify this. First time it's ever happened in American history. And I, I think all the calls from Congress to abolish the FBI, to defund the FBI, uh, I think those are only going to intensify because uh, no matter what you think about Trump or anything, the optics of this are, are clearly horrific. Uh, you have a, a sitting president who's uh, extremely unpopular, whose primary competitor in the upcoming election just had his house raided by the FBI. Um, you know, there, there's almost no conceivable justification for that. And uh, at the same time, we have uh, you know Hunter Biden, we have Hillary Clinton, we have all of these people who the public now knows have been involved in some very suspicious activities, and yet there have been no raids on their homes. And when you put it all together and you look at uh, for example, so many people within Trump's inner circle who've been taken down in what really looks like politically motivated attacks, uh, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, uh, you start to see a, a very troubling pattern. You combine that with the attacks that we've seen on everyday citizens. The FBI, of course, has been using counterterrorism resources to go after moms and dads uh, who speak out too vociferously at uh, school board meetings. They've been going after uh, journalists. They raided James O'Keefe's house. Um, I mean, th this really paints a, a very troubling pattern. And I think these uh, arguments by members of Congress that this represents the uh, politicization and the weaponization of federal law enforcement against the opposition, uh, I think those are, are very legitimate uh, allegations that need to be seriously considered. And Trump says that it's worse than Watergate. How do you think it compares? I think it clearly is. I mean, again, unless they end up saying that there was dead bodies buried under the floorboards or something. Uh, I mean, in Watergate, you know, they, they snuck in and supposedly stole a few documents, things like that. Okay. Uh, here they just raided a home, took out a bunch of documents, took out computers, uh, all without even allowing the lawyer to be present, without even handing over the search warrant. Uh, I mean, this, to me, makes Water, Watergate look um, rather small by comparison. You've written extensively on what you call attempts to destroy traditional America. And in this event, you've drawn a comparison between third world juntas and their actions. Could you elaborate on that? 
Yeah, I, I grew up in third world countries. I grew up mostly in Latin America, spent a little time in Europe and then moved to Africa. And so I've, I've been living in, uh, you know, under governments that are uh, less than clean most of my life. And um, honestly, I, I don't even recall seeing things like this growing up in Latin America or living in Africa. Uh, you know, you would occasionally have coups and, and election fraud and things like that, but never so blatant where the opposition would just be raided at their home. Um, really, the, all these members of Congress that are saying this looks like uh, the behavior of a third world banana republic tin pot dictatorship, uh, I think those are very well-founded claims. This, this is extremely concerning. It's, it's a new era in America. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this before. Uh, there there was always a kind of an understanding between the political parties, between the various factions that, you know, we may disagree with each other. We may really strongly disagree with each other, but we don't use law enforcement to jail each other unless there's legitimate evidence of a legitimate crime. And what it looks like here is uh, what the what happens under corrupt uh, third world regimes where the the sitting authorities, the people who are currently in power, go looking for crimes to take down their opposition. So, uh, you know, they, they search through people's papers, they, they go into their bank accounts and they look for crimes. And that it, it looks very much like that's what uh, the New York attorney general is doing uh, in targeting Trump and the Trump organization. It also looks very much like what the Department of Justice is doing under Merrick Garland. Uh, again, it's unprecedented. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in America. And uh, I think we all ought to be very concerned. And what does the politicization of the Justice Department mean for America? do you think? Well, for one, it means a, a total loss of public confidence and faith in uh, the justice system and in the federal government more broadly. And that's a, a terrifying thought. Uh, I mean, for 250 years almost, uh, the federal government has been a rock of stability. And of course, we've all had plenty of policy disagreements with the federal government. That applies to Democrats and Republicans. But we've all had this basic social contract uh, uh, contract where we agreed that this is the government, here's the constitution that it's supposed to operate by, and we had mechanisms for uh, for restoring that when it went off the rails. And uh, I think this is, is new territory. We're going to have to see where it goes, but I think it's a very troubling sign because once, once things like this start, it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to rein it in. Uh, once the, the targeting of political opponents begins, uh, that's something that escalates and escalates. Uh, we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of talk of civil war now uh, all over social media. We're, we're hearing uh, prominent people talk like this, and um, I think it's a very, very dangerous rhetoric. In fact, I think there are people who would love to see America descend into a civil war and take itself off uh, as, a, as a geopolitical player. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable for, for people to be concerned about this right now, because that seems to be the direction that we're headed. Once people lose trust in the government, when people lose trust in the elections, um, things get very nasty very quickly. So I, I think Americans really need to hit the pause button and think very seriously about where we're at. Alex Newman, author and senior journalist, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Republican lawmaker Scott Perry, a Trump ally, says the FBI seized his cell phone yesterday, a day after the former president's home was searched. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Representative Scott Perry says three FBI agents visited him Tuesday morning and seized his cell phone. That's according to the Epic Times, citing a statement from Perry's office. It said, as with President Trump last night, DOJ chose this unnecessary and aggressive action instead of simply contacting my attorneys. These kinds of banana republic tactics should concern every citizen. It comes a day after the FBI raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Trump's lawyer, Christina Bob, told Epic TV's Facts Matter program Tuesday that the FBI was searching for what they deemed presidential records and seized documents from Trump's property. But she said the FBI had already inspected Mar-a-Lago around June when Trump invited them to search the property. We had been very cooperative with them before, and it, it's unclear to me why they went to such drastic measures to do this, but they did. And as far as the probable cause goes, they wouldn't give that to us, and they've requested that that be sealed with the court. While some Democrats have said the raid proves no one is above the law, Many Republicans and even some non-Republicans have questioned whether the raid was politically motivated. Former federal prosecutor Mike Davis told Steve Bannon's War Room Tuesday that even if Trump took classified documents, he took possession of them when he was still chief executive and had authority to declassify them. So when he left the White House with 15 boxes, they're not classified anymore. So this whole idea that President Trump 
violate violated some statute on class classified records is complete garbage. Davis said the raid may have been illegally invasive because you cannot do a home raid if you can secure the documents through less intrusive means. He said there's no evidence that Trump wouldn't have cooperated. Government watchdog Judicial Watch is filing a motion asking the court to unseal the search warrant materials as soon as possible. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And now to inflation, which is cooling, according to today's data. But prices continue to linger at 40-year highs. Still, President Biden is praising the economy, while others say it's a bit too early to celebrate. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more. The latest inflation data shows signs that inflation is cooling. The smallest rise in prices in more than two years. Consumer prices are 8.5% higher compared with a year earlier. This is down from a 9.1% year-over-year increase in June. On a monthly basis, prices were unchanged from June to July. Today, we received news that our economy had 0% inflation in the month of July. 0%. Here's what that means. While the price of some things go up, went up last month, the price of other things went down. Is this something worth praising or at least looking at in somewhat of a positive light? No, I, I don't think so. Again, the only reason that energy prices are going down are because people can't afford energy. I mean, it would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. This is really genuinely destroying people's financial lives. But in terms of that year-over-year -year number that gets so much attention, that probably is not going to peak until September. While prices for travel fell, airfares are still nearly 30% higher than they were a year ago. Grocery prices jumped 1.1% in July, and they're 13% higher than a year ago. And Democrats on Capitol Hill this week are on track to pass that budget bill that we've heard so much about lately, calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. It is on track to pass the House later this week. Now, they're hoping that this bill will lower inflation, but it will have impacts for the energy sector because it does raise fees and royalty rates on oil and gas producers. So we will have to see how this will, in fact, uh, impact the energy sector. Some are raising the alarm that it could cause gasoline prices to go up yet again as oil and gas producers pass on those higher fees to consumers. As for the Federal Reserve's role, analysts believe the Fed will continue to hike interest rates in the months ahead, and they may have a long way to go. To put the, the rate hikes in context of just how much further rates have to go, the last time inflation was this high, the Federal Reserve's key interest rate was about 13 percent, 10 full percentage points above where the rate is right now. In other words, we have a thousand basis points to go. But the Federal Reserve is still aiming for that soft landing as they continue to hike interest rates. Their next meeting is in September where they will hike interest rates yet again. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi recounted her Asia trip today, reiterating support for Taiwan. NTD's Iris Tao has more on Pelosi's response to China's recent military drills and to Beijing's sanctions on her and her family following the trip. Amid threats from China, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi reiterating support for Taiwan. They're not keeping us from going to Taiwan. We will not allow China to isolate Taiwan. The remarks come just a week after the House Speaker led a high-profile visit to the democratically ruled island, over which Beijing launched its largest ever military drills encircling the region while lashing out at the U.S. Um, if the cost of avoiding these types of provocative measures is to cede control of Taiwan to the People's Republic of China or to cede control of our travel schedules in Congress, to the People's Republic of China, that is not a price we are going to pay. Meanwhile, China on Wednesday said its week-long exercises around Taiwan are now over, though it vows to normalize such drills. And they asked Speaker Pelosi. So would you expect China to kind of stop its saber-rattling over Taiwan for a while, or do you expect it to use, you know, use your visit as a pretext and potentially the drills as a game plan to speed up its timeline of invading Taiwan? Well, the, uh, I think what we saw with China was they were trying to establish sort of a new normal. 
and we just can't let that happen. And Congressman Meeks tells me that he hopes the trip has shown Xi Jinping that no matter what he said, the U.S. will stand by its friends and allies. China now has to take a different viewpoint on it because we are unequivocal. Led by the Speaker of the House gave Xi a message that he's not going to dictate to us on what we do and what we don't do. And asked about what her reaction is to being sanctioned by Beijing following her trip. <laughs> There's no reaction. I, uh, who cares? I mean, right. And regarding if she thinks the Biden administration had been too cautious by saying that the military did not think her trip was a good idea, Pelosi declined to comment on that while saying the support from the U.S. military had minimized Beijing's impact on their travel. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And now turning our attention to monkeypox. The FDA yesterday granted an emergency use authorization for the Genios monkeypox vaccine. The agency is trying to boost vaccine supply. The authorization allows healthcare providers to use the vaccine for individuals who are considered high risk for monkeypox, both those who are over 18 and under 18. But the vaccine will be injected differently for those two age groups. The FDA says this will reduce the dose of the vaccine to one-fifth of what has been given until now and increase the total number of doses available by as much as fivefold. This is so more people can access the vaccine. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf said that the current vaccine supply will not meet the current demand. And staying with health news, dozens of lawsuits have been filed against an HPV vaccine manufacturer. People are saying they've had severe side effects. One of those is former athlete, a former athlete who reportedly can no longer walk. Pharmaceutical company Merck produces the Gardasil vaccine, which is supposed to protect patients from HPV, a virus that can cause cancer and genital infections. According to the Associated Press, dozens of people suffered life-altering side effects and filed lawsuits against Merck. Last week, over 30 suits against Merck were consolidated into one. They'll all be brought before the same judge in North Carolina. Merck reportedly asked the judge not to consolidate the cases against the company, saying that it would, quote, draw unwarranted attention to dangerous vaccine misinformation. Lawyer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is representing some plaintiffs in the case against Merck. He posted this video on Twitter. Over the past year of intensive discovery, we've been able to show that Merck the manufacturer of the Gardasil vaccine was aware that there was an unacceptable risk of neurological disorders, of autoimmune diseases. The Des Moines Register newspaper reports that a former athlete in Iowa has been bedridden since 2019, unable to walk or stand. The newspaper adds that the student started feeling the alleged side effects two months after he got the shot. According to immunize.org, HPV vaccines are mandatory for elementary and secondary schools in four states across the U.S. We reached out to Merck for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. A popular transgender activist posts about sending personal prescription hormone drugs to people who don't have access. And this has critics questioning whether the activist could be breaking the law. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Transgender activist Eli Ehrlich is outraged over laws that prevent people from accessing hormone drugs. But Ehrlich says there's a temporary solution. In a now-deleted Instagram post, the activist said, If you need hormones, I'm working with a distribution network to get you access. Everything is free, no questions asked. Critics questioned whether Ehrlich could be breaking the law. I asked attorney Sarah Parshall Perry if distributing prescription drugs is a crime. Yes, and in fact, not just one crime, but quite a number of them. Perry elaborates. Things such as distribution to minors, those individuals under the age of 21, distribution anywhere near a school or college, distribution using some kind of a technological implement or the U.S. Postal Service. And these are specifically on top of a baseline offense, not including any associated state offenses that would also be taken into account. 
Perry conducted her own research on Ehrlich. This individual has indicated beginning back in 2019 that they were uh, ordering double doses of these prescription medications and they were using the U.S. Postal Service to distribute them to individuals who'd made the request. We're looking at significant time in federal prison if the Department of Justice and the DEA decide they're going to go forward with an investigation. I asked Perry if she thinks this should be investigated. I believe they have an obligation to go forward with asking the questions and individually investigating this person. The Drug Enforcement Administration told NTD in an email that it does not confirm or otherwise comment on ongoing or potential investigations. We reached out to Ehrlich for comment, but we didn't hear back before broadcast time. In March 2021, the activist posted a YouTube video called Over-the-Counter Hormones. The video was removed from YouTube hours before this broadcast. In it, Ehrlich admits to ordering extra doses of hormone and testosterone blockers to give to friends and others. In a disclaimer, the activist discourages people from doing anything illegal and says the video is hypothetical. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And in California, the future of a drug consumption site law is in the hands of the governor. If passed, it'll allow the creation of supervised drug sites in several major cities. Some state senators and other concerned opponents are urging for a veto. NTD's David Lamb reports. California may soon have supervised drug consumption sites in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Oakland. One mother has been campaigning against the legislation. I'm not happy about that legislation at all. My first reaction is that it's just more enabling um, and we're putting so much money into enabling the addicts that are on the streets and not enough resources are going into rehabilitating these addicts. California mother Jackie Berlin co-founded Mothers Against Drug Deaths to help with education and awareness of the drug epidemic hitting both the state and the nation. I'm hoping that Governor Newsom vetoes SB 57. Senate Bill 57, introduced by Senator Scott Weiner, would allow a space for people to use drugs under supervision, intended to prevent people from overdosing. It would also provide sterile needles to users. Senators and opponents are concerned it will increase drug addiction and, quote, have the real potential to do continued damage. On August 1st, all nine Californian Republican senators signed a letter to Governor Gavin Newsom asking him for a, quote, swift veto of the law in what they refer to as legalizing, quote, drug dens. Earlier this year, a homeless center in San Francisco called the Tenderloin Center was intended to link people to drug recovery services. Critics said it was similar to a drug consumption site. And it actually was just a place where people could congregate and do drugs as well as buy drugs. Um, we didn't see it have any kind of success in lowering the amount of drug deaths that have been going on in San Francisco. I don't believe it would have that effect in um, Oakland, San Francisco or LA. I don't believe it will lower drug deaths. Her son, Corey, has been battling fentanyl addiction and lives on the streets of San Francisco. She worries the consumption sites would be a death sentence for her son and others. Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco introduced the bill as an overdose prevention program, calling it, quote, necessary intervention to prevent overdoses. He said, in these desperate times, this bill provides California with the opportunity to lead by example and to equip itself with another tool that is scientifically proven to help prevent and decrease overdose deaths. I would love to see the state and the city of San Francisco um, put more emphasis and more, um, you know, more work into rehabilitation, actual rehabilitation, rather than maintenance, which is what I believe the city and state are doing right now. Addiction maintenance is what they're doing rather than rehabilitation. The bill passed in August in a 21 to 11 vote, with eight Democrats abstaining. It's now headed to Newsom's desk to either veto or sign it into law. Mothers Against Drug Deaths has an upcoming rally at City Hall on August 21st. David Lamb, NTD News, California. 
And coming up, baseball star Shohei Otani continues to amaze. NTD's Dave Martin has the latest on his performance last night that equaled what only the great Babe Ruth accomplished. And Beijing issues a major policy document on Taiwan right after ending the week-long military drill around the self-ruled island. That and more when we return here on NTD News. Welcome back. Many of the candidates Trump endorses are winning in the GOP primaries. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg brings us more on Tuesday's primary in four states. In Wisconsin, Tim Michaels won the Republican nomination for governor with Trump's backing. I'd like to thank President Trump for his support, for his endorsement. He defeated former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. And, and my heart goes out to my primary opponents. Rebecca Clayfish, a tremendous candidate, tremendous candidate. Clayfish was endorsed by former Vice President Mike Pence. Incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers ran unopposed and will face Michaels in November. In Wisconsin's Senate primary, Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes won his party's nomination and will face incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson in the general election. Johnson easily beat his only challenger with over 80% of the vote. In Minnesota, incumbent Representative Ilhan Omar eked out a win in the House Democratic primary for District 5 with just over 50% of the vote. Her closest competitor, Don Samuels, had a little over 48%. She will run against Cicely Davis, who won on the Republican side. Minnesota's 1st Congressional District had a special election as well as its primary on Tuesday. The special election was held to fill the seat left vacant after the death of Republican Representative Jim Hagedorn. Hagedorn died earlier this year from cancer. Republican Brad Finstad beat Democrat Jeff Edinger in a close race to serve the remainder of the term. The same two contenders both won their primaries for the same seat, with Edinger netting over 90% of the vote and Finstad getting over 75%. They will face off again in November. Scott Jensen won the Republican nomination for governor with close to 90% of the vote, and incumbent Governor Tim Walsh won on the Democratic side with over 96%. Vermont's Senate primary has Gerald Malloy winning the Republican nomination and Peter Welch for Democrats. And in Connecticut, first-time political candidate and Trump-backed Leora Levy won the Republican Senate primary. Levy is hoping to unseat incumbent Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal come November. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And just a few days ago, Elon Musk sold nearly 8 million shares of Tesla. That's worth almost $7 billion. He now owns only 15% of the company. One Twitter user asked him if he's done selling, and he said yes. He says if Twitter forces the deal to close and some equity partners don't come through, he wants to avoid an emergency sale of Tesla stock. Another Twitter user asked him if he'd sell stock again if the Twitter deal doesn't go through. He responded yes, with no further explanation. Musk's net worth is around $250 billion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 23-time Grand Slam champion Serena Williams hinted at retirement in a first-person essay written for Vogue yesterday. The 40-year-old wrote that she's, quote, never liked the word retirement. Later on, she said, quote, I'm here to tell you that I'm evolving away from tennis. Williams is scheduled to play at the U.S. Open later this month, and should she win, she'd be tied with Margaret Court for the most major titles all time. I talked to writer, commentator, and tennis historian Chris Bowers and asked him, should Serena retire, where she ranks among the all-time greats. Bowers points out that it's difficult to compare Williams to Court because Court played both before and after the major tournaments allowed professionals in, also known as the Open Era, which started in 1968. Ultimately, though, he puts Serena right up there in his top three. The other two, I would say Billie Jean King and Martina Vratilova, none of which is to deny the achievements of Margaret Court, Maureen Connolly, of Steffi Graf. 
um, and, and more recent players. But for me, the reason that Serena is in those top three is that she has gone beyond tennis. Bauer says Serena and her sister Venus, who won seven Grand Slams herself, have taken tennis to a whole new social group. I mean, she and Venus brought people into tennis who weren't interested otherwise. I mean, there were all sorts of stories from uh, New York and also California in the late 90s where people suddenly got interested in tennis because of the Williams sisters. Bowers also points out that Williams' incredible burning determination to be the best was evident in how she played the game, though she wasn't always able to control it. We saw the way she acted in the 2018 final against uh, Naomi Osaka at Flushing Meadows. Um, but in a way, I think that is the outlier in her. That is just the sign of the burning desire when she loses the control over it. Williams will play in the second round of the Canadian Open tonight against Belinda Bencic. In baseball news, Los Angeles Angels two-way star Shohei Otani continues to amaze with his performance on the hill as well as at the plate. The reigning MVP pitched six scoreless innings last night to get a win. He also went yard for his 25th home run of the season as the Angels topped the A's 5-1. The win for Otani was his 10th of the season and put him in exclusive company as he and the great Babe Ruth are now the only two major leaguers ever to have at least 10 wins and hit 10 home runs in the same season. Ruth had 13 wins and 11 home runs back in 1918 for the Boston Red Sox as the team was transitioning him to be more of a hitter. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And now to international news. Beijing issued a major policy document on Taiwan right after ending the week-long military drill around the self-ruling island. The document is the first of its kind in two decades. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has that story. China just released its first major policy document on Taiwan in two decades. The move comes the same day Beijing ended its live military drill around the island. So what are the key takeaways? The document says even though Beijing will try its best to achieve what it calls peaceful reunification, it will not renounce the use of force. Reunification is how Beijing describes its efforts to take Taiwan. It sees the island as its rightfully Chinese territory, though the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan. The regime's document also took aim at Taiwan's ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party. It says authorities in that party are undermining the prospects of peaceful reunification, adding that these are obstacles that must be removed. In previous white papers, Beijing said it would not send troops or administrative staff into Taiwan after taking it over. That line was left out of the latest document. In response, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen said Beijing's purpose is to threaten Taiwan. She also pointed out that the regime is trying to appeal to some Taiwanese politicians that are inclined to compromise with Beijing. What's more, Tsai criticized the opposition party. The same day China ended its military drill, the vice chair of the opposition party led a delegation to visit mainland China. China has ended its live military exercises around Taiwan, but that's not the end of it. The Chinese military says it plans to regularly organize patrols in the direction of the Taiwan Strait. The strait separates Taiwan from mainland China. But during the drill, China's military crossed the strait and encircled Taiwan. Warships from both sides sailed at close quarters, close enough that Taiwanese warships could reportedly see the Chinese vessels from their windows. China started the military exercise last week after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island. Even though Taiwan is over 7,000 miles away from the U.S., Beijing said Taiwan is the most sensitive and most critical issue in its relations with Washington. The U.S. acknowledges but does not endorse China's claim on the island. Washington does not have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but is bound by law to provide the island with the means to defend itself. The U.S. is promising to sail warships through the Taiwan Strait and send jets flying into the region, while Canada says it's joining in. 
The movements come in response to Chinese military activities in the region. Washington says Beijing's growing military pressure on Taiwan has become a prolonged strategy. Both the U.S. and Taiwan now believe that Beijing is using U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to trigger conflict and that it intends to step up its threats toward Taiwan. Officials said the U.S. Navy will sail through the Taiwan Strait within a few weeks, despite Beijing's recent claim of control over the entire waterway. What's more, Canada is joining the U.S. action. Sailing together with the U.S. Navy will be two Canadian warships, Her Majesty's Canadian ship Vancouver and Winnipeg. The vessels headed west toward the Asia-Pacific region after they wrapped up the U.S.-led Rim of the Pacific exercise last week. Canada's foreign affairs minister called on Beijing to use restraint. He said his country's government was very preoccupied by the threatening action that China is taking and their economic coercion. Coming up, no respite for Europeans suffering under a record drought. A new report says it's likely the dry conditions will continue for a while. And Domino's Pizza closing its last remaining stores in Italy. Apparently, Italians aren't big fans of American pizza. That more after this short break. Now to the leadership race in the UK. The Conservative Party candidates Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak addressed the cost of living in their latest speeches. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. In their latest hustings debate in Darlington, the two leadership candidates hashed out their views on tackling the cost of living crisis. Sunak said he wouldn't offer cash payments to every household, but would instead target the most vulnerable, whereas Truss condemned taxing people just to give the money back. The two contenders have faced growing calls to spell out how they would help with the energy price spike. Consultancy firm Cornwall Insight forecasts that average bills could hit around £3,582 in October, up from £1,971 today before topping £4,200 in the new year. Trust said she understands people are struggling with rising prices. But the first thing we should do as Conservatives is help people have more of their own money. What I don't support is taking people, taking money off people in tax and then giving it back to them in handouts. That to me is Gordon Brown economics. Truss said we had years of that under Labour and that she will cut taxes as soon as she becomes Prime Minister. She insisted having lower taxes would kickstart the economy by letting more money circulate. A growing economy, she said, would then bring in more tax revenue in the future. However, Sunak said he wants to give more support to people in vulnerable positions. And he claimed that Truss's tax cuts are not enough to help the least well off. Because tax cuts alone are not much good if you're a pensioner who's not earning any extra money. They're not much good if you're working hard on the national living wage because Liz's tax cut is worth about a quid a week for that person. It's worth zero for a pensioner. That's not right. Sunak's previous energy bill support plans are giving a £400 discount to every household regardless of their income. Asked if he is planning similar blanket support, he said he wasn't because he wants to target help towards the most vulnerable. And in a statement, Sunak said that if he becomes Prime Minister, he would act again once it becomes clear how much bills would rise. However, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, who is backing Truss, said the scale of the impending price rises meant it was wrong to suggest the problem could be resolved by government alone. He said, The idea there is a magic wand coming out of Whitehall, no matter who is Prime Minister, including the Labour Party, is fraudulent to say so. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. The EU is warning that severe drought will worsen in Europe over the next few months as hot and dry weather persists. A new report says up to 50% of the continent could be affected. Here's a report from NTD's Joy Duguid. The European Commission is warning that the severe drought afflicting Europe could get worse still. A senior researcher with the EU's Joint Research Centre says seasonal weather forecasts are causing serious concerns. 
because by looking at the coming uh, at the next uh, three months we we see still a very high risk of uh, dry condition over uh, over western central europe uh, as well as uh, the, the uk Toretti says that the areas affected by drought and lack of water will likely increase, potentially reaching almost 50% of the continent. Here on the Swiss-French border, business for the restaurants and boat companies has reduced to a trickle, just like the Doubs River. The river should course through a forested canyon and cascade over waterfalls before spilling into the Brenay Lake, a draw for tourists in eastern France. Instead, after months without meaningful rain, the river water has receded up the canyon and sluggishly reaches the lake in a narrow channel. In central Spain, a flock of sheep takes shelter from the sweltering midday sun under the Gothic arches of a medieval bridge. It was flooded in the 1950s to create the Tijara Reservoir, but now is fully uncovered after the drought left the reservoir over 80% empty. At the Buendia Reservoir, east of Madrid, the ruins of a village and bathhouses have reappeared, caked in dry mud, while at another dam near Barcelona, a 9th-century Romanesque church has re-emerged still intact, attracting visitors. July was Spain's hottest month since at least 1961. The dry spell has left Spanish reservoirs at just 40% of capacity on average in early August, well below the 10-year average of around 60%. The situation is quite dramatic in the sense that it's been several years without rain and we're hitting rock bottom. If it doesn't rain, unless they find some alternative water supply, the future is very, very dark. In Serbia, the drought is endangering shipping on the second longest river in Europe, the Danube. Serbian authorities have started deepening the river by pulling out sand from the waterway to maintain access for ships along the river. In Bosnia, after weeks have passed without a drop of rain, its agriculture sector is badly affected. In one area in the north, nearly 70% of corn has been destroyed. Authorities still refuse to declare a national emergency, claiming that Bosnia can be resupplied from neighbouring countries. But the drought has also affected countries nearby, so it's likely that imports could also be hit. Joy Dugid, NTD News. And a shortage of trained staff, labour unrest and flight cancellations are some of the factors prompting a summer of travel chaos in Europe. So let's take a closer look at what's happening at airports there. Baggage chaos, endless queues, cancelled flights. Scenes like this are common at European airports this summer. We were trying to get home to Denmark and um, our flight was cancelled. So what's causing the travel nightmare? Strikes and staff shortages are forcing airlines to cancel thousands of flights. Staff are asking for better working conditions and big pay increases after sweeping job cuts and pay cuts during the pandemic. In Spain, Ryanair workers walked out for several days in July, causing disruption at many airports. Lufthansa Pilots Union is demanding a 5.5% raise this year and automatic inflation compensation going forward. The German airline was forced to cancel more than 1,000 flights on July 27th when its ground staff went on strike. In June, Norwegian Air agreed to a 3.7% pay rise for pilots, among other benefits, in a sign of what other airlines may have to offer to avoid labor strife. Airlines have cut thousands of flights from their summer schedules to cope with the disruptions. Major airports, including London's Heathrow and Amsterdam's Schiphol, have imposed a cap on passenger traffic. That's led to British Airways halting ticket sales on some popular short-haul flights to destinations like Paris, Milan and Amsterdam until mid-August. 
Airports and airlines are scrambling to hire more workers from pilots, security, border control staff to baggage handlers after many left during the COVID-19 crisis. Amsterdam's Schiphol is operating with 10,000 fewer workers than before the pandemic. Paris's Charles de Gaulle and Orly airports need to fill 4,000 jobs, mainly in security, maintenance and retail. That's according to airport operator group ADP and the CDG Alliance. Industry executives say these jobs are tough to fill since the work is often physically demanding and relatively low paid. Training new hires and getting them security clearance to work at airports also takes months. And pizza corporation Domino's is shutting down its stores in the birthplace of pizza, Italy. That's after the local franchise holder filed for bankruptcy in early April. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. Domino's has been given the boot from Italy. Or actually, you could say they decided to leave. It seems Italians prefer locally made pizza over American pies. Domino's last 29 Italian branches have closed. According to Bloomberg, it borrowed heavily for plans to open 880 stores and has struggled to win over customers in the birthplace of pizza since launching there in 2015. Social media has not been easy on Domino's. One Twitter post said, Domino's has had to close all of its stores in Italy, and honestly, I've never been more proud of my fellow Italians. Another said, eating at Domino's in Italy is a hate crime. This tweet said, apparently they didn't learn anything from Taco Bell's failed attempts in Mexico. In a report to investors, Domino's franchise holder E-Pizza said, We attribute the issue to the significantly increased level of competition in the food delivery market and consumers out and about with revenge spending. The world's largest pizza chain has more than 18,300 stores in over 90 international markets globally, most of which are run as franchisees. Total revenue for the second quarter increased by approximately $32.7 million over the same period last year. This was driven by higher supply chain revenues, but was partially offset by declines in the company's own store revenues. International franchise revenues were also up, but were more than offset by unfavorable foreign currency exchange rates. Sean Marshall. NTD News. And over in South Korea, inflation is hitting that country too. It's at a 14-year high. Now convenience stores are offering cheap instant noodles, sandwiches, and meal boxes for under $5. They're gaining popularity as salaried workers seek ways to cut costs. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Park Mi Wan had never bought her lunch from a convenience store until her favorite lunch buffet recently raised prices by more than 10%. I started going to convenience stores instead. I think the prices are more reasonable and the food tastes good too. So now I come here often, about two to three times a week. The prices of restaurant dishes in South Korea rose 7.4% last month, compared with a year earlier. The fastest pace in 24 years, according to government statistics. Lunchtime is a break for me, but if the cost of lunch goes up more, I think I'll feel like it's costing me a lot of money to rest. That takes away from the idea of getting a break. Lee Song-jae runs a Galbitong restaurant in Seoul's Central District. He's already raised prices twice this year. As a matter of fact, I need to raise the prices even higher, but instead I'm giving up some of my profit margin as I also have to consider office workers' tight budgets these days. So I raised the prices only a little, sharing the pain with them. While many small restaurants are still benefiting from a rebound in evening dining after months of pandemic-induced social distancing rules, economists warn prolonged pressure on consumer prices will weigh on consumption. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.